You're listening to the Center for Public Impact podcast. We're a not-for-profit foundation founded by the Boston Consulting Group. My name's Adrian Brown, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Public Impact. It was a pleasure a couple of weeks ago to speak to my old boss, Tony Blair, about the future of government, which is a topic we're researching here at the Center for Public Impact at the moment. You'll hear from the conversation that we touched on a range of topics, reflecting on his experience as a Prime Minister in the United Kingdom leading a major reform programme, what the challenges were of that, and what his reflections are now as to how governments can be more effective and, and how they might need to adapt in the future. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Let's kick off sort of right from the beginning. When you be- first became Prime Minister, you noted that there was this gap between saying, which is what oppositions can do, and that's basically it, and doing, which is what you have to do in government. Why did you see such a big gap, do you think, when you came into government? Um, because a lot of the changes that have been made by um, the Thatcher government have been changes that essentially were legislative. So, for example, you, know, you could pass a law privatising uh, a business or you could pass a law giving certain rights to people in respect to trade union action. But these were laws, the reforms of that era, were laws that, that once passed, then other actors would, would take the process forward. Whereas if you wanted to change public services, uh, you wanted to tackle health inequality or educational opportunity or law and order, then it wasn't just about legislation. You were actually having to make public services and public institutions change. And that was much, much harder to do because they, they operated according you know, to their own structures and interests and were often quite resistant to change. So you know, that's really where it, it came obvious to me that really through the health service as much as anything else, because in the first few years of government, you know, we kind of beat the system over the head to make it work harder. And it, for a time it kind of did, but then you know, you stopped beating it and stopped working. And it was, became obvious to me that there were structural questions that had to be dealt with. And you've also described the role of Prime Minister as, as the skill set as being much similar to maybe a chief executive of a large company than maybe a traditional politician from years before. I suppose that relates to what you were just talking about, about needing to really understand how the system works and how to drive change through a system. Yes, so definitely the role of the leader in a, in a country today is much more akin in government to a, a chief executive role. And the problem is that the skill set that brings you to office in a democracy, which is about communication, campaigning, ability to translate a message into simple and easy to understand statements for the public, is a skill set that, frankly, when you're in government, is much less useful and bears not at all on the executive capacity and capability, which is the vital thing that, that makes the difference. And that's why in our in the second term, you know, with Michael Barber, we created the delivery unit and concept, which is now we replicated around the world, but essentially was to create the systems which allowed us to, and allowed me as a, a leader to be much more an executive driving and pushing and shaping the system. As well as the delivery unit, you had the strategy unit, you beefed up the policy unit and number 10. So you really built us a, a strong centre. How does that compare to also your 
reform agenda, which was about empowering citizens. Is there any contradiction between that very strong centre and the empowerment of citizens? Yes, yeah, so people always think that the concentration of power at the centre always comes under attack from people who say, well, that you're creating either you know, a presidential system or you're creating too much power at the centre, and then it's said to be inconsistent with empowerment of the citizens. I mean, I would strongly refute both of those things, because if you don't have a strong centre, you can't drive the change. Part of that change, by the way, is to empower citizens. So a lot of our reforms around education and healthcare and law and order were, were empowering local communities and citizens but you weren't going to get those reforms unless you drove them from the centre. And I can't think of any successful government anywhere in the world that doesn't operate with a strong centre if it's a, an integrated system. I mean, you could look at the United States of America and say, well, you know, you've got different centres of power there. But in the end, that's because so much happens at a state level. And I would say at a state level, if you look at it, the effective administrations are those that have got strong leaders that drive change. And in terms of empowering citizens, you, the reform agenda had choice, which was about giving people the opportunity to choose their providers in health and education, but it also had voice as a component for people to be able to express their, their point of view and participate in decision-making. Is it fair to say that the choice part of that was more fulfilled than the voice part, or do you think they were both equally fulfilled in your reforms? I think what I would say is more that the choice and the voice can go together, in a, in a way. I mean, look, people today live their lives in a much more I will choose what I want to do type of way. And, and, you know, technology has allowed people to make much more choices about their life. People change jobs much more frequently. The way people live and work is much more individualistic in one sense. So not to have choice in public services is a sort of bizarre concept because in every other walk of life, you're searching for lots of different choices and options. So, so I think this is, I mean, it always struck me as crazy that this was seen as somehow antithetical to the development of public service. Because unless you believe the public service should just be run for the producer interest, then the consumers of those services should be entitled to, you know, to have as much choice and possibility of change and options as possible. And I think with voice, what's important is that you're, you're able to have a voice that allows you to... to make your point known to the system and to interact with it. But, you know, what people often characterise as voice is, as it were, the politics of kind of pressure groups. And I always say to, to people, one of the first lessons you learn in politics is that those that shout loudest don't necessarily deserve to be heard most. So you've got to be careful when you're giving voice that you're giving voice to real people articulating their real desires. Otherwise, what you actually do is you just, <laughs> you know, you turn your your system of interaction over to interaction with certain well-formed and active pressure groups that don't necessarily represent the large body of people. I remember when we were doing the first academies in places like Hackney, where frankly, if we hadn't done those, those schools would have carried on getting the most appalling results. And yet, even though we were building new schools and putting enormous power in the hands of local communities, you still had huge and active voice, in inverted commas, saying this is monstrous and shouldn't happen. So you've got to be careful when you're, when voices, in inverted commas, is impacting government, that you're listening to the full range of views, including from those who speak quietly as well as those who speak loudly. Yeah. By the end of the second term, which is also when I was working, uh, working for you in number 10, 
there were really significant improvements on health waiting times, on falling crime, on education results. But when we asked people, did they think crime was falling, they still thought that it was, it was going up. So there was this gap between what people perceived and what the statistics were telling us. Why do you think that was so hard to change? Because there's been so much effort and energy and conversation about how all of these results were improving, and yet the public didn't seem to... I think, yeah, I, I ponder this sometimes. I think there's sometimes a time lag. So we actually hit the highest levels of satisfaction for the health service probably three or four years after really those reforms started to impact. Likewise, if you think about crime, because we were actually the first government since the Second World War where crime was lower at the end than at, at the beginning, the best test of it is that crime ceased to be an issue. I mean, the reason why it's interesting now is it's come back as an issue. And by the way, it's come back. I've been saying this for about the last year. It's going to come back as, a, as an issue because the government's not focusing on it. And it's one of these things where if you send signals in the system, it immediately starts to react like that. But so crime, I would say, yeah, again, there's a lag. But, you know, if you look at crime as an issue, big issue in the 97 election, 2001, slightly less in 2005, actually not much in 2010, and not much at all in 2015 or 2017. So, but I tell you next time it will be. Yeah. Another potential paradox is, is that despite government arguing more customer-focused, more citizen-centric than ever before, still room for improvement, but it is more, more focused on user needs, the gap that people feel between themselves and government and the trust that they feel in government, the connection to government, seems to be certainly not improving and possibly, and possibly worsening. How do you think that paradox is uh, explained? So there's a big, big challenge in Western politics, which is how you overcome people's sort of mistrust of the system and politics and so on in circumstances where actually most politicians spend most of their time trying to work out what the public wants and, and, and to do it. So it is a, it's a very odd thing. How do you make sense of that? I think firstly, and this is not so controversially to say, but I do believe it. I think the media discourse around politics has just been so destructive over a long period of time that, you know, people are much more inclined to believe conspiracy theories of politics than they are to believe that the politicians are just people trying to handle really difficult things. Also, secondly, government is really hard. And then thirdly, which is a very bizarre thing, when you think about it, but is kind of accepted... Government and politics is the one area of life you can think of where being a professional is actually a term of abuse. And yet when you think about it, I've conversations with people some that say, well, why are you saying that you know more than the ordinary person in the street about, say, Europe or trade negotiations or something? Because <laughs> I've been prime minister for 10 years. If I didn't, there'd be something wrong. In the same way that you know, I'm, I actually like to watch a lot of football and I... I think I know about it. I can probably tell you a lot about the premiership teams. But am I as qualified as Rafa Benitez or Pep Guardiola? No. And that's not necessarily because I'm not as intelligent a person. It's just if you spend your entire life doing something, chances are you probably know how to do it better than the other person. So the other thing is that we got into the situation of a sort of denigration of the political class. And, of course, the irony is that where it all ends up is sort of Trump. I mean, that is the irony of the whole situation. You're all liars, cheats, and frauds. And so 
that's where we end up. In the end, what is really important, I think, is to work out how you change the nature of the discourse between the citizens and the government. And so that people realize what they can look to government for and what they can't. Part of the other problem is that politicians always want to tell you they can solve all your problems, but actually some of your problems you're going to have to solve. That's a very difficult message to give people. But what you can do, and this is where I think this, the central question for the next sort of 10 years will be, can you reform the state and the way government works to make it effective, enabling, empowering, and create the infrastructure opportunity for people to take advantage of? And are you prepared to make the difficult decisions around lots of concepts of work, retirement, and so on, which really take account of the fact that all of those things are changing? So this is what I think the challenge is. Because otherwise, you're just left in a situation where the politicians, in a curious way, are just kind of trying to chase what the public wants. And they end up mainly following and not leading, which is also dangerous because inevitably that leads you to very short term solutions that, that just depend on where the politics of the moment are. Thinking of the future, one, you know, one of the big trends that I know you're into at the moment is the role of technology with AI and other technologies coming down the track. I think you've already said that this is going to need a revolution in public policy. In what ways will, it, will government need to change in order to embrace the opportunities that these technologies offer? So government will need expertise and knowledge. And part of the problem, the whole issue of technology at the moment, is that there's a massive gulp between the change makers and the policy makers. And so one of the things we're looking at in the Institute is how do we put together those who are changing the world with those who are going to be making the policy that regulates it. But otherwise, what, what you're left with is a situation where you end up with, as we're having at the moment, a kind of Facebook privacy type of discussion, which obviously is one part of it and is important and so on. But you know, when you think how AI has got the potential to revolutionize the way government works, it would be actually a really important and productive conversation to say, how can technology change the world? I mean, I think, for example, in development, because we do so much work in Africa, worth really, if I was back in government today, I would be putting a large part of the efforts of our development department, which is a massive department, well-funded, with a, a large budget, on how do you encourage the development of technological solutions in Africa and the developing world that allow them to bypass the legacy problems of the West. You know, I don't really notice that going on at all at the moment. One of the other things that our research has picked up, which technology could, could cut both ways on, it's interesting to reflect which way it would go, but that, that people desire a more human government, that if the machine is just seen to be too faceless and too technocratic, it's no empathy, there's no authenticity, yeah. and, and that this side of government is also going to be important if we want to people to flourish. Have you seen any ways in which government can be more human and authentic? I mean, I think you can use technology, for example, Estonia, funnily enough, is probably as far advanced as most in this, South Korea to a degree as well. And in our tech paper where the Institute's just published, you know, we suggest a lot of ways in which you can have very personalised interaction through technology with the system. But mostly what people want is the ability to get things done quickly. I mean, I think you know, you can overcomplicate this. You know, one of the reasons why the iPhone was such a successful invention, and I actually remember having this conversation with Steve Jobs shortly after it came out, and he was just explaining to me in a way that was really not very technological at all, but actually much more to do with just 
the understanding of consumer preference, of just how he was absolutely determined to make this thing as simple and as clear and as easy as possible. And, you know, that's not a bad option for government. You know, there should be a massive inter set of interactions you can do very easily with government. And even today, you notice in different European countries, some countries' governments are very responsive. I mean, our, actually, in terms of online services, our government came online. Actually, the Cameron government did quite a lot in this regard. But other governments, if you want to renew your passport or something, it's like a sort of Herculean task. But I think government's best to concentrate on those things, because then it can show that at least when we're interacting with you, we're doing it with some knowledge of the fact that what you want is an easy-to-understand and simple service. And Estonia is one of the countries we're, we're working with. So they are so advanced on this. So final question for me, and then we'll just have a couple of quick ones from Katie. So looking ahead now, in the next 10 years, what makes you optimistic about government's potential to make real positive change happen? The embrace of technology. If it does it in the right way, it could change the whole way government works. We're asking all our interviewees this. So if you could change only one thing about how government works, what would it be? Quality of people. Bringing the best in from the outside and allowing far easier interchange between private and public sector. How would you know whether you had achieved success in the government of the future? You, you should have measurable objectives. So it should be no different from operating a company. That's why in the end we decided we would set targets. I mean, they're not a substitute for everything else, but it is quite important to know whether you, you're meeting basic objectives. What is the one skill that policymakers of the future cannot live without? Knowledge of the potential of technology. I think this is absolutely critical. And this is the fun one. What animal best expresses the government of today and then of the future, or how you would like the future to live? Behemoth. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, and let's say leopard. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that's what Tony Blair thinks, but we'd love to hear your views on the future of government. You can find our contact details via our website at www.centerforpublicimpact.org and we'll be publishing more interviews and our own views on the future of government in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Centre for Public Impact podcast. We're a not-for-profit foundation founded by the Boston Consulting Group. Join the conversation about public impact on Twitter at CPI underscore foundation, on LinkedIn and on Facebook.